Good afternoon and welcome to the Tortoise Shack Sunday special. This is our rundown of the week that was um, and some of the events that slipped under the radar. Uh, as always, I'm joined by my Echo Chamber co-host, Martin McMahon. Martin, how are you? Not too bad. Good morning to everybody. I'm sorry. Good afternoon to everybody. Yeah, well, we know who you what, what time clock you work on. Um, <laughs> it is uh, it is a packed show today, and I just want to we are we have a great lineup, but we have we have a special special guest in, in that we have Nadim Hussain um, joining us from from Cork University Hospital, um, following his nine day hunger strike uh, to avoid deportation. Now, I just want to raise something, and I want to frame this, Martin, because we spoke about this in the week where Nadim took no, it was it was nine days on hunger strike the same week we had people actually having to go on live line to ask someone is there anywhere available to rent families looking for somewhere to rent uh, a mother father and four children and the dad was working and they were willing to pay rent and there was nothing for them to only and, nowhere and when we look at that and then you see as i said nadim actually visibly deteriorating on social media uh, his his health deteriorating every day and then we read that the main problem in Ireland is that the president isn't going to uh, the commemoration. It kind of, it kind of said there certainly is a something, something wrong in how how we how we look at things. But anyway, nonetheless, um, Nadim Hussain, thank you for taking the time to talk to us, and I hope you are, are you starting to feel a bit better, Nadim. Hi everyone, my name is Nadim Hussain. I am still in the hospital after nine days of hunger strike. But I wanted to come to this interview to say thank you to this platform and the people of Cork for fighting for me as a worker in a direct provision. Thank you to TDs that made representation for me in dial and protesters. I am grateful and love you. I look forward to contributing to Ireland again and paying taxes from my heart and from my soul. And I'm very thankful to the people of other organizations and my legal team and one of my friends Raminder Singh and his family also. Nadim, thank you very much for that. Can I ask you about your frontline work? Will you tell us about that? Yeah. In KFC, when I was in KFC, in level five, I worked there. As a security officer, I work in many hospitals. Uh, and we have advocated on this podcast for the longest time for um, obviously the ab abolition of, of direct provision. And I know Owen from the Abolish Direct Provision campaign is, is here as well. But I, Nadim, I, 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 I'm, I'm conscious of that you're, you fled effectively um, Muslim oppression. That's why, you, that's why you came to Ireland and sought uh, refugee status. That's, that's true. Sir, I came here for saving my life nothing else because according to the law when you go to the first country they should be given with every evidence i have given all the evidences i was given to the ipo ipad everything and i was shocked 
to see that I was refused. My father mother died on 27th March 2018. I am a political leader over there, CPIM, Communist Party of India. And the IPO people refused me. See, in here, you have a PPS card, am I right? Yeah. In India, we have a identity card that takes with the help of fingerprint. Fingerprint. Mm -hmm. So in India, I will go anywhere. They will find me easily. And you said your 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 parents were were, were killed, uh, died in in twenty eighteen, and you fear genuine fear, re realistic yeah. fear that if you were to be sent deported back to India, that your life is is in jeopardy. Yes, sir, because I already told that I have two problems. One is I am Muslim, is okay. Too many Muslims are there. I also know this, but too many Muslims are not doing CPIM. Now there is no CPI members in power. So it's political as well as religious. Yes, CPIM. I am the member of CPIM, Communist Party of India. And Nadine, my father. Yeah. I, I just want to ask, what what kind of persecution do you face if you go back? If I will go back to India, they will kill me. It's that simple. They will kill you. Because it's a Modi government. Yeah. In 2007, one minute. In 2007, you go and check straight away. You taking the media and all and everything. But the reality, if you will go to 2007 when he was the chief minister, he murdered too many Muslims in Godra Kant. After that, who is the home minister? He have too many criminal cases against him. He killed Shorab Jaha in a fake encounter case. You can check in Google everything. You will get what I'm speaking now. And, right. he, and, 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 and he is now and he is now the most powerful man in India. Yes, he is a home minister. Who is the defense minister? Rajnath Singh. And he have a criminal cases too. Nadim, can I ask, um, just to bring it back to to what's happened since your your nine days on on hunger strike, yeah. you have gotten assurances now that you believe to be credible from the Irish state that you will be allowed to remain. See, always I said when I was in hospital coming also that I believe to the people of Ireland. My belief is in. Irish people who came out for me. And do you feel part of the Irish community, Nadine? What? Do you feel part of the Irish community? I am a member of the Irish community. This is my family. What you are telling to part? I am the member. And this showed by the Irish people. Good. See, before I said that Cork is my family. And after that, in social media, in when I was in hospital, that time there was a rally. You can check over there. So these 
shows that Irish people also like me. So there is now no question about that I am a part of a Irish community. You can ask me, yes, Nadim, you are the member of family member of Irish community. Um, Nadim, I'm for one, I'm grateful that you've gotten assurances from the Irish state in relation to your um your status. I'm just horrified that you've had to take such a lengthy campaign and such a dangerous campaign how is your health now are you able to eat or are you are you feeling any better I, now my health position is very bad because in my stomach there is inflamed already and every day i'm going to see every day i'm giving bloods for my organ testing and reports have not came yet Okay. Um. Look, Nadim. Again, I, I, it's, I, I, I don't want to, 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 to trouble you any more than I can. And perhaps I could ask Owen to comment from the abolished direct provision campaign because Owen, we've spoken before, um, and the last time there was assurances given by the government, and I know the the minister, um, Roderick O'Gorman, was working on on his promise to, um, to end direct provision. Uh, how do you feel things have come on, and you know? Why do you, why if that's actually got working, do we have to have a hunger strike in in 2021? Uh, thank you, Tony and Martin. <clears throat> the last time that we were on this program was the beginning of engagement, and to this date, as you can see with the hunger strike, nothing has been done. You know, Minister Roger O'Gorman has just been appointing advisory committees and boards without proper engagement with asylum seekers. And that's why asylum seekers are worried today in, in Ireland, because you got, you're getting 20,000 undocumented migrants getting citizenship at the end of this month. And there is a silent, muted tone towards asylum seekers that are suffering in direct provision. And we hope that the minister will take this situation very serious because, you know, we're beginning to protest. We're coming out of COVID-19 and so on. And it's only fair that People like Nadim and the hundreds, not thousands, of asylum seekers should be given amnesty. France has done it, Portugal, Italy. Now it's time for, for Ireland to do better, as the Tanisha has said. I actually agree with you fully because when COVID nineteen emerged, we saw other countries give that amnesty, and it meant that it was it meant that some of the COVID spread in in worse off communities was actually able people were able to get treatment because we not they naturalized and normalized their 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 yeah their status so you know i i just i find it disappointing well not disappointing it's beyond it's enraging that we have a hunger strike in 2021 and i know it's something like nadim i i'm very conscious that you you don't you still don't sound very well come on, come on ahead sir everybody is telling to me I have done hunger strike. Some people is telling something, but I have one question to everyone. When was my first article? You can check the dates and everything. In eco, that cork is my family. I am doing security for the country. Why there is no security for me? Yeah, and that's then, a very good point, Nadir. And then... It's not about sir point. I told you only one thing. Truth comes from the heart. It's not in the mouth. And I, I, I ask you only one question, sir. See the status of me. I am getting injections in my stomach. See? I can show you. 
So why I am in here in this position if I am really, really not scared to go India? This is my question to all the people who is giving me bad comments. Well, Nadeem, I, I would, I would say that the people who are saying this sort of stuff are are bad faith actors, and and, and I'm sorry that you've had to put up with that nonsense because, um, to 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 talk fully to you. It's 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 brilliant that you've worked throughout the pandemic, that you've worked in our hospitals and be maintained that position as a frontline worker. And I'm really sorry that you've had to go through all of this. And I hope our listeners um, understand that and will actually raise their voices and 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 make sure that we, we don't need this to, to happen. And pressure on the government to actually start to, to not normalize this. Go ahead, Nadim. Sorry. Uh, level five. There was no people was allowed to go work. And we in house. I was going to the KFC. I have to go to by walking to the Fort Hill. Then I have to take a bus in level five in bus. And that time I was alone in the bus in level five. Nadim, I think in Ireland those people who are are saying bad things. They're, they're very loud, but they are not the majority. The majority of people are very happy to have you in Ireland and very happy to have you in Ireland. So we wish you a very speedy recovery. Um, and we really do wish you a speedy recovery. And we want to welcome you back into our family in Ireland as soon as possible. Thank you for coming on here this morning. And thank you for talking to us. Thank you so much. Um, we will move on and I just can't want to thank Nadim and I would ask Owen if there's Owen is there anywhere else for people if they want to get involved to, to support the campaign where, where can they find the information they can visit www.directprovision.org and hopefully when Nadim is recovered you know because he, he's now well now we arrange an event and so on but www.directprovision.org okay and thank you Nadim for coming and have a good day Thank you so much to everybody. Um, Nadim, do you want to make one last point? No, this is not a last point. This is a message. It's a request to the IPAS that due to the med medical condition, when I go from here, so doctor said me to be alone. So I request to IPAS to please help me in that. Thank you. Thank you, Nadeem Hussain, and thank you, Owen, from Abolished Direct Provision. Um, how do you move on from that, Mark? Um, well, we, we do have to move on, and I think we're going to move on to uh, Orla Hegarty. Going to hit pause on the podcast for a moment. Um, we have been putting out a lot of content, as you're probably well aware. Uh, there's plenty also available on patreon.com forward slash tortoise um, You've probably missed out on podcasts uh, with, with Ronan Lyons, with Dan Nickstrom. Um, the budget specials, which had two full panels, we will get them out into the timeline as quickly as we can. But we really, you know, we have to give a, a patrons get something for their uh, for a few bups. They get they get it straight away. And we try to try not to, to bombard it out, out into the mainstream. But we are going live. We're going to have a live. Con <laughs> oh, fuck. A live show. We're going no, live no, 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 no. Bollocks, Mark. Okay, go. go we've been very, we've time. been very sloppy. Throw it over to me if you find yourself running out of words. Okay? Oh, no, just I know. I know. I, I know what I want to say. It's just um, getting there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Take it from the top.
going to interrupt the podcast again, and um, we have to because look, listen, this is what how this is what pays the bills, um, this is what keeps us going, um, and whether people don't want to listen to this well if you don't want to listen to this it's really simple you could just go to patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack uh, and you'll get the feed without this in it uh, you get a consolidated feed that's all the podcasts whether it's echo chamber reboot glow west policed and i'm starting work on, on a new season of built different tomorrow and i know conversations are three episodes into their, their second season so there's a lot of stuff coming out but you get one RSS feed, one podcast feed, and it's all a one. It's all a one-stop shop. And it's it's basically a fiver to you. It means I can eat, basically, and that's the reality of this. Um, Martin, it's been, you know, every time we do this, we get a lot of stick for it, but I don't think people understand. We have to do this. Yeah, I'm not ashamed to do it, Tony. Look, we want to keep the, the platform going, and I know loads of people. I know thirty thousand people a week listen to us, Tony. So yeah. A lot of people get something out of it. We just need a percentage of that 30,000 to ante up and make it available for everybody. That's all we need. So if you have the few, Bob, you stick your hand in your pocket and you become a patron. Yeah, no, um, I, I, I'd go one step further. You're, you're, you help keep this platform going and then you help to get lead it as well because we do engage with listeners. We, we engage as, as a community and we engage with, with particularly the people who are there. And whether I take crap for that or not, I don't care. The simple fact is, this is this is how we pay our bills, and this is what I'm trying to do to cover everything to keep this going. I think the work matters. Or actually, I know the work matters because I see the success of of many of the podcasts that we've produced over the last four or five years now. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoise It's a fiver. Um, and just before you go, don't forget, we have our live show coming up. And look, it's going to be a great night. There's details on the Patreon for the live show. Get your tickets straight away. Looking forward to seeing you all there. Going to let you back to your podcast now. Thanks for listening. Bye. Good morning, Orla. How are you? Good morning, Martin and uh, Tony. Can I just firstly wish Nadim well for his recovery? And could I also, I suppose, broaden it out to say that people in direct provision have been at um, serious risk because of the conditions they're living in during the pandemic and have been disproportionately impacted with COVID and uh, again we're seeing outbreaks this autumn um, in these buildings. This is preventable um, Thanks, and, and I think it's very important that everything be done to protect people who are living in housing that puts them at higher risk. Thank you Orla and you've been very vocal uh, recently and, and all through the pandemic about the risks. Um, you don't believe that the vaccine is enough to keep us safe, that it, it requires physical measures too. Will you give us your read of the situation we're in right now? Well, it's, it's not that I don't believe it's enough. I, I, it, um, that's not my area, but I'm reading the science and I'm following people who are respected and authoritative in this area. Um, enough that when I was at the Oireachtas Health Committee in May, I said at that stage, uh, which is nearly six months ago, that vaccines alone wouldn't be enough and that uh, we needed to have a prevention plan that supported the vaccine program um, in order that all of the heavy lifting of the vaccines wouldn't be wasted. Uh, because uh, if vaccines can't do it on paper mathematically, and this was pre-Delta, um, there has to be uh, precautions taken. So we either do that in a systematic scientific way with the least impact on people's lives and the most effect for the effort um, or we do what we have been doing, which is 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 poor policy negotiated uh, with people in different sectors on no scientific basis. 
that fails. So what do you think we should do immediately? Um, well, firstly, I should say we're in a very serious situation. I, I, I you know, I think there's a, there's a dissonance in the media between, you know, it's time to move on, open up, it's endemic, we're over the worst um, vaccines are 90%, which is not 75%. Um, there's, there's that message in the media. And then there's a parallel message, which is becoming quite alarming from people in the health services who um, are completely overstretched, burnt out, losing staff, um, have higher numbers in hospital and higher numbers in ICU than at any of the start of the three lockdowns. So the but, three they, previous they, but, but they're arguing that that the the rate of vaccine that we have at the moment that's the the biggest mitigating factor it is and it's a huge mitigation if we didn't have the vaccines we would we would have uh, you know we would have had a crisis by last june or july um so it, the vaccines do a huge heavy lifting and it's really important uh, but but it, what it doesn't do is solve the problem and you know the trigger for action before from government has always been that the health services were about to be overwhelmed and that surgery for cancer and heart disease and all sorts of other um, important medical treatments had to be cancelled as they did last January and February. And the trigger for lockdown before was a crisis. I, I'm anti-lockdown, I should say. I've been anti-lockdown from the beginning. I've always believed we should be scientific about this. I, th I think we can say that everybody is anti-lockdown yeah. and that, that lockdown is the, is the last measure that nobody wants to get to. It should be. And we have alternatives that we're not using, which I suppose is my frustration. But my worry is that the way things are going, we will we will have a crisis whereby the health service triggers an emergency response in an unstructured, uncontrolled way where everybody is told overnight uh, that things have to shut or that schools are disrupted again or, or, or something like that. And, and uh, sorry, Orla, can I come in just because the um, locked, everybody has said lockdowns. Like the WHO have said, said lockdowns are not the way forward. We should be using mitigation. The things that you've argued for for a long time now, it, like it seems like forever that that you've been making these points. Um, and but uh, but the idea when you spoke to Anthony Staines during the week, he made the he made the point that a lockdown just buys you time to ramp up yeah. your mitigation structures, and we've never actually done that. Well, we've been ramping down actually. I mean, I, I looking at the figures, we have twice the number of cases at the moment as this time last year. And we have doubled the rate of deaths. The, the rate of deaths from COVID now is more than stroke. It's 10 times the death rate on the roads. That's just the scale of it at the moment. And because they've been announced weekly, I think people are missing it. But the point of, you know, the point of managing it is like there's lots of strands to this. Uh, track and trace isn't my area, but just looking at the data, um, there's about a third as number outbreaks being reported at the moment um, as there were this time last year. And we have twice as many cases. So it's very clear from the data that uh, contact tracing in schools and homes has been completely wound down. You're, you're talking about the health service crashing really early is what you're talking about. And then us crashing into lockdown. Alan, in Moscow, they have pretty much crashed into lockdown this week. Yeah, we're, we're, we're coming back into it. They did the usual. Um, I mean, it's been an absolute mess. Like in, we came out of lockdown simply on a, we say, like a, cap a capricious sort of moment from our mayor here in Moscow, uh, where the rest of the country was open for business. Uh, there was a, a fight for power between himself and our, well, relatively new Prime Minister Mishutin. And um, Mishutin made a comment to Sogyan, the Moscow mayor, that, oh, you know, uh, Moscow's killing business. And literally, you know, I was, I was out, uh, you know, coming in, in from work because uh, I was allowed to 
to, to go out because we're looking after students. And um, message came out, yes, that tomorrow it's all back in, into business. And um, things have been getting worse. That was last, well, last what, day. What, what kind of numbers were you at when you started going, opening up or when you opened up, Alan? Uh, well, it, it depends because, you know, if I'm taking to Moscow, I mean, we were kind of getting in like your two, well, 2,000 uh, per day and so on. The death rates were very, very low. And now uh, the, we're, we're back up to the level that we were in June, but the death rate uh, is over 1,000 um, wow. per day. And this is that for a week. Vaccination up to, uptake has been very poor, uh, despite everyone being given it. And I know people personally who got um, fake certificates to say they got vaccinated, but they didn't get vaccinated. Uh, I know people who are meant to be in quarantine. Uh, for example, like, you know, they're, they're in a class in school were quarantined, so the child was sent home and couldn't go to school. But the brother and sister were still expected to go to school. So they're coming from the same house, mm-hmm. eating from the same you know, bowls and kitchen, and that that's going on. So our vaccination rate is under 40%. Um, that's that's a that's a very low rate. Alan. It's, it's, it's you know, extremely low. Yeah, it's really low, uh, Martin. And, and the worst thing is, for example, in July, this huge push came on. I mean, I'm head of a in the international office. I'm head of the international office in one of the big biggest universities here in Russia. And uh, so, I, the guts of seventeen staff, twenty staff, but like seventeen actual that were in work, like just a couple of maternity and so on. So. Well, the staff, we were told 60% have to be vaccinated. Uh, I pushed, pulled, got people. But, of course, if you had had COVID in the previous six months or had over, I think it was 14 antibodies uh, in your blood, then you were okay. Now, I had had COVID twice. I had um, sufficient number of antibodies, but I was told I had to get vaccinated. So I did. Um, And now we were told last week that it will be 80%. But even then, within the, the university, I do know people who have um, gotten fake certificates and even gotten fake certificates saying that they had COVID. So there's partial fear, there's partial stupidity. And then the other, I suppose, third part is people who just kind of go, ah, it'll, it'll but, go but, but Alan, can I ask one question and then maybe come back to Orla on this because it's important sure. that we get this in context. Um, you're in Moscow, considered one of the great capitals of the world. What your, your what is your health service like, and how is it holding up? Because we're facing a situation order where there's not one critical care bed available for a child, unless and, and just under twelve now, I believe for um, for adults. Like, what's the equivalent in in Moscow? Uh, honestly, um, we're just speaking about this at football training today. But our transport system here is is fabulous and cheap, really well run, well looked after. Medical system in in Moscow City is very good. They set up uh, hospitals just outside the capital, just outside Moscow at the end of the the red line in the southwest. They set up these major hospitals, like basically where they had you know um, wards set up. So it's been very very well run. Um, they're not even when it was at its peak, even this summer uh, when people were getting very very ill. Um, you know, my other half was hospitalized and was in for over two weeks uh, with COVID. Um, and it was, but even still, they looked after people very, very well and it was good. The capacity is always in Russia. And they took on the Chinese model where they literally converted um, exhibition centers. They basically took over hotels 
Um, now, of course, they paid money for that. The government actually paid the money to do that, but they reacted very, very quickly. Uh, how it's going now is not not as good as it should, but the health service here, um, I would say, is in, in, in overall terms, is better than in Ireland. And Orla, that's my personal experience. Orla, is our health service in any way prepared for for this? I can can I be, can I can I say something, Martin? There's also there's a there's a there's a medical professional in the audience I note as well who who uh, who, who who would you know. Um, have 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 on the front line as well. So it's really important that we that we know that 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 you know. And Orla, you've been advocating for this, and and uh, and this is just something that we need to we focus on. But when you see those numbers, Orla, they are stark. They're really stark, and I think you know we've had a huge shift in policy since about June without oh. any public debate about it. We we went from a policy of protecting people, supporting people to be at home when they're sick, supporting businesses that were particularly high risk for spread, um, uh, and, and and a policy of protecting children, to um, a policy of every man for himself, uh, personal responsibility, uncontrolled spread, winding down track and trace, failing to protect schools, um, and expecting the health service somehow magically to have the capacity to deal with that. And we can see what's happened in the UK. In many ways, we followed the UK, which is a very political rather than scientific strategy. Um, and they're in crisis, you know, and um, the schools are in crisis. It, our schools are, it's not been talked about enough, but a quarter of the cases now are in primary school children. And, and this isn't flu. This isn't a minor illness in children. M- many children will be uh, will have mild symptoms, but their parents will be off work. They'll be out of school. Uh, one in 10 of them will have long COVID symptoms. And a small percentage of children who are healthy children, and it's a preventable disease, will end up in hospital. Uh, and there's no hospital capacity for them. But, you know, we spend billion, millions in this country preventing breast cancer with screening, we spend millions preventing measles, we prevent road accidents. You know, we have strategies for things that are preventable. We have food safety laws, we have water safety regulations, we have fire safety regulations, and we have an airborne disease here that spreads in the air with no air uh, regulations for safe indoor air. When, you know, we know it spreads by breathing. Um, you know, we have no standards that can be inspected. We have no clear public health messaging that even tells people how to protect themselves. And we have failed uh, uh, to protect schools and, and worse, have put out a false message that schools are safe when there's no mitigation. Schools are only safe when there is mitigation. Alan, you wanted to say something. Yes, I was raising my hand. Like I felt like, you know, uh, when I speak with schools, I felt I'm in school at the moment saying, please, sir, we're missing to speak. Um, this, is, this is the whole thing. That, and and, and I, did, I, I argued for this because, of course, you know, working uh, last year, I worked in one university, and uh, and I, I moved uh, in October a year ago, um, and I saw how they were dealing with things, and it was they were dealing with it very, very well. I mean, superbly well. Um, I was in Ireland last year for GAA Congress as part of the Gives Your uh, delegation. Um, I flew out of Ireland in the morning, the first of March. Wasn't sure if I was going to get the flight because there were massive storms at that time. In the Crow Park Hotel in Crow Park and so on in Dublin, there were people mixing from everywhere. We had the Asian delegates coming in, the North American, you know, Canada, USA coming in. From around Europe, we came in. Uh, I just coming from Germany. I was in on holidays in, in, in Germany at the time. 
there was kind of, the, you know, when I went back, suddenly we locked down. And of course, as you know, as well, my kind of, my other job is in sports journalism. And the whole thing we heard, and we'll all understand this, the whole thing we heard was mental health. We need something to look forward to. Mental health, mental health, mental health. And pushing on, and we need to get back out, and we need to get people out as quick as possible. If we look at, you know, in football alone, and, and I was, and even now, uh, the Moscow clubs here, Lokomotiv Moscow, Spartak Moscow, and so on, this big derby today, Spartak playing Zenit, they're discussing, we'll have to move our matches back maybe till the springtime. Yeah, so, God, so, so the restrictions, the restrictions are coming are, and hot and heavy, Alan. Yeah, but they're not really. They're, they're 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 restrictions. But I also, when you like, Alan, you were at football training this morning, so yes. you know, so it's 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 one foot in, one foot. Out. It actually leads to a really good point because right. Gabriel Colleran in, in in the comments who I refer to has has asked them um, about uh, resistance and implementing implementing sensible evidence based advice. She's given on mitigating risk, especially indoors, uh, and especially with a view on the seasonal uh, the season impact. Because uh, we all we're all moving indoors now, guys. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is what's going to happen, Orlan. You've been saying that, that that for for the longest time. Well, I mean, I don't know how to express my frustration. You know, I, I wrote an op ed last October. I wrote one last November. I spelled out how we could avoid lockdown. I spelled out where policy was flawed. I joined a group uh, advising NEFET and government in January, and I stayed in that group until July. I advised the Oireachtas Health Committee in May. Um, everything I have presented is evidenced, and I'm collaborating with a lot of people who are world leaders, some of them in this. And all of that scientific evidence is being deliberately ignored in policy. We're having policy statements that have no foundation in in any evidence or science. But but more importantly, we've the entire economy and our progress through the winter in terms of schools and health services and running the country is reliant on this plan. And there's been no independent review of this plan and no risk assessment. There needs to be a group of people around a table when a plan like this is formulated, that the entire economy is riding on, never mind society. Um, that is, that the assumptions are interrogated um, and that, that people uh, who are coming from disparate backgrounds and we bring more diversity, more women, more minorities into the room, more people who have different experiences and that that policy is tested hard before it's implemented so that we don't get it wrong. And I don't see that there's been any review of this policy or or even discussion in the media. It's just been accepted. I, I the latest modelling has already been exceeded. The model that was that this was issued last Monday was already exceeded by Friday. There was it was anticipated there would be two and a half thousand cases a day by the end of November. We had them this week. Yeah. So so the numbers. Well, not I, I think the point on it not being discussed, Orla. I think we're beginning to see. Um, it discussed. I think pretty much every broadsheet paper this weekend has has gone with the, an op-ed piece about letting people letting it rip, basically. Yeah. And, and this rip. is a pattern, Martin. We had this last. We had this last um, uh, before last Christmas. Very very heavily um, uh, weighted towards. Uh, uh, we have to reopen the economy and people want a good Christmas. We then had a very strong narrative, which again was very flawed and no scientific basis in early summer, um, that children don't get ill. And that was to do with vaccinating adults is enough 
And if we, and you'll have heard the 90% of adults vaccinated all the time, children ignored. So there was a really strong narrative from some commentators early summer that children aren't at risk and we don't need to worry about them at all. We don't need to do anything about schools. And now there's a very strong narrative this weekend about acceptable deaths. So what I'd like to see is if, if, if people think 2,000 plus deaths a year is acceptable from preventable disease, let's do them. Let's do the accounting. Let's put the money on the table. And if we spend 4 million on road safety where 150 die, let's spend 50 million on COVID prevention. Um, and, and, and I can tell you where we would start. Um, we wouldn't accept this uh, and we shouldn't accept it. Nobody has been infected in November, December or January. They are all preventable infections. And I don't mean lockdown. I mean, using scientific strategies like they do in Taiwan and Hong Kong and China and Japan and other places to stop the spread of the disease. And we haven't used any of that uh, uh, science. We have all of the knowledge and ability and it is excluded by the medical establishment. And I, oh, sorry, sorry. Very much. I need to just make it the points that, again, in the comments, some brilliant comments. And again, thank you so much. But it's like we don't know, pointed out, we don't know the long Im impact of COVID in children. We, we're seeing bron bron bronchiolis in children this October with the children sicker much earlier in season and no beds for them. And that's from a... It's a multi-organ disease. Sorry, Tony, to cut across you, but COVID isn't isn't a respiratory illness, um, you know, where people uh, have difficulty with breathing and coughing and sneezing for a few days or a few weeks. It's a multi-organ system. There's a plenty of evidence coming out about neurological damage, about uh, increased diabetes, about kidney damage. I mean, these are not my uh, specialist areas, but there is a mountain of research coming out. Uh, and the longer term impact of COVID may be much worse than the short term in terms of people's um, access to health and education and the, and the burden on the health services and on the economy. Um, you know, this idea that uh, it's a short term thing and we'll, we'll just reopen and pretend it's not happening is, 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 is extraordinarily politically driven. It's not scientifically driven. Like if, if we are to um, reopen and pretend it's not happening, well, then where are the elimination strategies? You know, we, we don't suddenly decide to deregulate the roads and uh, and deregulate everything else. You know, we, we have we know what uh, clean water did for health um, uh, in the last two centuries and how it, it, it was probably the clean water and clean air were the two things that started to extend people's lives. Um, we know what clean water can do and we would not accept deregulating water safety standards tomorrow. And yet we think that it's OK not to have any air safety standards. Uh, and, and even knowing the long, long history, I mean, Florence Nightingale was doing this in 1863 um, and solving disease spread in hospitals with very simple precautions and no vaccination. And, and we're not doing the things that she was doing then that worked. And I think too, Orla, if the if the government has changed policy to let it rip, then they do us a disservice by not having that discussion. Well, who may I'd like to know where was that decision made and on what advice? Because somebody must be accountable for this change in policy. Because I don't think there's consent from parents for their children to be infected in schools. You know, I, I, you know, where is the political, uh, the, the, the open conversation about policy? Because if it is the right policy, well, then let's substantiate it and interrogate it. Let's not, let's not do it quietly. I'm going to move us on now. Tony, Orla, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Well, we greatly appreciate it. Alan, please hang on. If you have any comments on what's coming up, please raise your hands. Thanks, Tony, I'm going to move on to you. You have, have some points about the week that you'd like to raise. Oh, uh, yeah, no, just a few things that have um, come to light. Obviously, the, 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 
the DHRE, which is the Dublin Homeless Regional Executive, have put out a report into effectively soup kitchens, undermining them. And, um, you know, they've basically argued that, well, they're, the food they're providing is, is um, it's not nutritious. And many of the people who are queuing up to get it aren't homeless. You know, I just let that hang there, you know, so so they could just be hungry, Tony. Yeah, you <laughs> could just be hungry, never mind homeless. But um, and now I spoke to to Louise and the Muslim Sisters of Error, and we will do a full podcast on it during the week. But I just thought I didn't want to let it slip past that that that, that has come out. And um, one of the people who covered this um, actually used the words and I, and I quote that they were politically embarrassing. So. You know, where's the where's the real thing here? Is is it that they, they don't like the soup kitchens or that it's politically embarrassing that that you've hundreds of people queuing up every day in Dublin City every evening in Dublin City Centre to receive a meal? Um is is that as politically embarrassing, Tony, as Dennis O'Brien giving out about Facebook making a show of this country? Uh you know, two weeks ago I think it was we had Comrade Dermot Desmond. Now we have Comrade Dennis O'Brien, and it's Again, it's that, you know, that awful meme where it says the worst person, you know, has made a good point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> Dennis O'Brien is right. Facebook don't pay taxes properly. They, these companies, they're set up in such a way as they're not doing. Ireland happens to facilitate a lot of it. Um, but we, we need to we need to be wary, as we said, like um, we had, I had a great conversation during the week with with Seamus Coffey and Kieran Nugent, two economists who kind of are opposed each other in in certain orthodoxies. But they both know that Ireland is, is facing a shit ton of trouble when because we're so reliant on corporation tax. Uh, Alan, did you want to comment? Yeah, just in, in the soup kitchens. Um, it's it, when I was living well, many years ago now, living and working in Croatia, 2003 to well, 2008, basically. Um, the city I was living in was called Knin, K-N-I-N, and it's been the centre of, it was the former centre of the capital of the breakaway Serb Republic, which in Croatia and Bosnia. And the, uh, there was a couple of religious organisations that used to have basic soup kitchens and give away free food. Uh, and the, the government covered it up because they basically didn't want to show that even though the war had finished eight years before and they like you know they were building motorways and saying how great everything was the fact that men women and children and even because i was working there and uh, i remember walking down the street one morning and seeing three players from the rugby team that i that we coached and so on three players from the rugby team lining up that they were like 18 and 19 at the time they're lining up with their grandmothers to help them like you know get food to go home and I, I asked the guys, why? I said, well, basically, the money we have, you know, we can't afford it. And it just, it was a kind of a, it was basically set, told, was told to us by the government, because I, I tried to raise it then, I said, because I was working with the city council, why can't we speak about this and help? And they're like, no, 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 we have to keep it quiet. Yeah. And eventually, they outlawed it. They closed down the kitchens. They said sanitary and like all these. Well, in Ireland, what we're doing is we're we're saying that it's un, un that the food's not nutritious. Therefore, it's a thing. So yeah, and we we're we're gonna we're gonna try and re- commission a report to to destroy it. And again, we'll go back to it into more. But I, but it is important to say that yeah, it shows how it's the same bloody argument. You know. Um, Within within decades of of it been happening, and and it is just because it's politically embarrassing. I do I do think um like I'm I'm conscious of time, guys. I know if we get on, but Alan, I would I wouldn't mind asking you while I have you, um yeah. the geopolitics at the moment. The last time we spoke, they they uh, Belarusia had they they were taking planes out of the sky. Um, 
Putin was looking the other way. All of these things were going, and and I think I think we agreed to to disagree on some things, but we also agreed that there's no there's no good actors in, in any in any aspect of this. How has has is there any heat in this Cold War lately? It's gone strange, and it was funny because I know we, we 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 I did sort of say about Navalny that like. Um, and I, I kind of made a, a joke inside that a dead Navalny is a better Navalny for the whole situation. He's, he's worth more dead than alive. And then a, a short while later, then supposedly he was poisoned. And, you know, we still couldn't figure it out. It's still unbelievable. Now he's in jail. Um, he seems to be very free in jail, by the way. He seems to have full access to Internet and so on. So, you know, it's a fairly OK place where he is. But um, the heat has sort of gone down a little bit. Uh, now the focus, of course, is looking at Turkey, where uh, Erdogan kicked out 10 ambassadors, even the NATO ambassadors there yesterday. Uh, in Russia as well, they're, they, they're, they're pushing as much as possible this uh, not, the, the, the vaccines. It's funny because it, it, there's more uh, uptake in the, vaccine, the Sputnik vaccine outside of Russia than inside of Russia in terms of percentage of population like San Marino and Hungary and so on. Um, is that, not the, is the, that the vaccine that that, that they that they stole? <laughs> Apparently, yeah. It, it, <laughs> it was a great one where they're working. They're working with Oxford, and then Oxford released their one. Russia released their one, and then of course, like, oh, they stole that. one. was like, no, didn't they work? Uh, anyway, uh, it was. Oh, no, listen, you you tell me you tell me, Alan. What's the who who who's winning the propaganda battle on this one? What, what were they working? Oh, Russia is not. Russia is definitely not. Russia will never win the propaganda battle. It's just impossible. Um, the the one one interesting thing is that um, when when um, really weird thing like we were told because of students coming in, so we recruited students in and coming from around the world, but. There was a list of countries who, which were open to students where they could get their visas and couldn't get the visas to come into us, you know. So Montenegro, which is a, an ally of Russia, they their students couldn't come in to wait. So I was speaking every week on, on uh, Friday. I have a call with our students at 11 o'clock. And wherever they are, they, they come on Zoom and they, they, they ask questions. Wherever. And I just told them, well, listen, no change, nothing. Two o'clock, an announcement comes out. Ah, oh, happy days. All students can come back in. But it wasn't in law. The law actually said the opposite. Then it took so many weeks and so on. That was in August. Next thing then, uh, we were being told, get ready for a flood from Afghanistan. Like, okay. Then Kabul fell. And we had all the students, we've like, you know, recruited quite a lot of students coming from Afghanistan. The most, the, the most popular place for Afghani students to study in is Russia. And Russia gives them free education, free um, uh, lodgings, like in the in the dorms and so on. So they were told you have to get the Afghan students in, and there was a weird silence. Um, the world media, even though, and this is and this is no joke, I informed uh, friends of mine working with major networks from CNN, Sky, BBC, uh, and, and and others here in Moscow, saying, "Look at what's happening here! All these Afghan students are being." literally rush out of Afghanistan, you know, you know um, men and women who were had their visas or, or were, had gone home for the summer and they were come back in. And Russia is looking after them all, making sure they all get flights, free flights and so on back in. Not a word. And they said, oh, we rescued uh, six Afghan students who were on scholarship in Oxford and wherever it was. So that kind of weird thing is the narrative was being very, very much driven that uh, Russia is doing a deal with the Taliban, which, well, this 
past week, the Taliban were here in Moscow having a good old chat. Um, and it's kind of a, it's a weird narrative that no matter what Russia is going to do, um, there's never any credit given to it. Well, let's, let's 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 rewind the tape and say that Joe Biden pulled out based on Trump's deal with the Taliban. That's the, that's a fact. He, he yeah. honored he honored Trump's deal. And then on the on, on the flip side, um, I know speaking to you over the last number of months, you were concerned about these students that you knew and that trying to get you know making sure that they were looked after. So you know, so whatever about the geopolitics of it, um, your motivations were just about the security of the and, and the safety of the children and the students. That's oh. what it was. That, that's that, it. Totally. That's all we can do. I mean, like this this year, like we would like that, like for example, when I had just taken over last year, uh, we had a call with one student whose husband is a PhD student in the university. His wife began to study a master's in uh, English language master's in PR and communications, and um, which is in Homs. Or she was in Homs in Syria, and she came on and said, "Look, I only have three hours a day electricity. Um, I get maybe two hours a day." Wi-Fi. Um, I'm going to have to pull out of my course because, I, you know, my let I can't be online for lessons and I can't get a visa to Russia. And the Russians basically worked in every way, anywhere. Like we also had students who had applied for us to come in from Tigray, and there's a massive war going on in that part of Ethiopia right now, um, and we're trying to get the students out and into Russia. And when I'm speaking with colleagues in the UK and that, they're kind of going, "Well, we'll wait and see." wait and see. And it's, it is, like, yeah, you're right. I mean, with the Afghan students, thanks be to God, all of them, all of them, Tony, I'm happy to say that all of them are safe. Two of them have, uh, two of three that we were very worried about because they're from a, a, a minority ethnic group who were being literally slaughtered by the Taliban. We got them into Russia, um, basically by hook or by crook. I'd say more by crook than by hook. Um, and we got them across the border into Russia and yeah, there's a bit of satisfaction in that, but at the same time, it's kind of, you know, do yeah. it's, it's kind of it, it got lost in in the in, in the whole thing. And, uh, actually, can I can I come in on that and just say it's actually sure. it's 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 also known that Ireland um, has done quite well relative to other um, countries and actually trying. So I've I know Colin McGorman has actually spoken about it recently about standing on the. Standing in Dublin Airport um, at two a.m. in the morning, waiting on flights to come in for for you know for for young people that that just their lives weren't going to be the same. They were going to be destroyed by the, the new ideology that t- taken over. Um, uh, we're conscious of time, Martin. We do. Yeah, to- we are. We're conscious of time, but I I do have to mention we are going live in the Shirk Club, and we are so looking forward to seeing you all there. Alan is going to fly back from Russia. Paul <laughs> is most certainly coming. I hope Nadim is well enough to come. And I hope Owen, you'll come along with us too. Um, I will have to say Tony will be there. But look, we're so looking forward to seeing you all. Great boys are better. Really looking forward to it. We're going to wrap this part of the show. Um, if anybody wants to ask questions, if anybody wants to hang on and raise your hands, we'll ask questions. We'll have a little further discussion if anybody wants to. I want to also thank you all for coming along this morning. It's been a great chat. Um, thanks, Tony, for, for hosting it and saying mass this morning. It's always helpful to have you saying mass. Special thanks to Nadim Hussain. And, and I think... Um, Nothing more powerful than to hear that man's own voice and what he's been through. Um, and I hope I, I hope all listeners understand and uh, we can be more welcoming and get rid of this um, awful system that we have. 